Hey, everybody. <laughs> Happy Palm Sunday to you. Uh, hopefully you guys had a great spring break. My family, we got away to the coast for the week, and we were uh, out in Cape Kiwanda uh, just with the kids. It was awesome. Um, my wife, like, she was totally right. It would be fun. I was totally wrong that it wouldn't be fun. Um, if you've been to the coast with little kids, you know, or if, if, if your kids have grown, you've probably forgotten what it's like, but typically the Oregon coast going to the beach with kids under five years old is fun for about 15 minutes, and then usually the rest of the time is wind and sand in people's faces and sand in the diaper and sneaker waves that wash kids up and down the shore and at least one or two lost Frisbees and a handful of other things, but Amen. only most of that happened, but a lot of other fun stuff did too. Um, Today we are going to be wrapping up our series that we have been in over the last few months that we've been calling The Vandalism of Shalom. Uh, we have spent the season of Lent uh, doing sort of a deep dive on what is sin. Why is sin bad? How does it affect us and what has Jesus come to do about it? And so today we are going to finish up by, by looking at Jesus' last public sermon before he went to the cross found in Matthew 23. If you have your Bible, you can turn there. Uh, but as you're turning there, question, if you had one week left to live, what would you do with your time? How would you spend your last few days? Would you retreat to somewhere peaceful? Or would you frantically fill your days with activity and busyness and seeing people? Would you want to see all of your friends and have a huge party, a, gig, a big send-off, going-away party? Or would you want quiet time alone, maybe with a select few people? Would you spend your time writing letters to impart wisdom to, you know, maybe your kids or your grandkids? Would you use your week to settle old scores and get some revenge? <laughs> Would you go to Disneyland? This is all the questions that, you know, I, I was thinking about as I thought about Jesus is one of those, is, is a rare person who was aware of the fact that he was about to die and was still in good enough health to do whatever he wanted and so today is Palm Sunday, which kicks off Holy Week, the final week leading up to Jesus' death on the cross. And consider how Jesus spent his last few days on earth. After three years of ministry all over the region of, of Israel, um, Jesus had been going around preaching the gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom of God was at hand, and then he would go around demonstrating what that kingdom was like by forgiving sin or healing sick people or people who are in pain, casting out demons, caring for the poor. And at the end of this three years of ministry, Jesus comes back to Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And Jerusalem is the center of power for the religious world at the time. People are gathered outside the gates of Jerusalem as Jesus is riding in on this donkey and they're waving these palm branches and they're saying, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are welcoming Jesus as their Messiah. And as Jesus rides in on the donkey, he gets off this donkey, and we don't know how much time passed, but he essentially seems to get off the donkey right at the foot of the temple. He walks into the temple, looks around for a minute, and then begins to throw tables over and break 
cages of, of doves and things like that and drive these money changers out of the center of the religious world saying that my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have turned it into a capitalist system. You've turned it into this horrific thing that it never was designed to be. Instead of serving people, you are excluding people. You are extorting people. And Jesus just full of fury at the systemic evil at the heart of the temple. The center of worship in the earth had been corrupted. It had been vandalized by selfish gain and performative religion. And after tearing apart the temple, Jesus goes and he spends his night, spends the night with some friends outside the city in a place called Bethany. And then we see the next morning he wakes up and he's walking back to Jerusalem, and he's probably still feeling the frustration from the day before, all that had happened. And as he's walking, he's also hungry. We see Jesus occasionally gets hangry like the rest of us. And as he's walking and he's hungry, he sees this fig tree, and, it, and it's barren. There's no fruit on this fig tree, and it's meant to be a parallel for the hollowness of the religious system. And he looks at this tree, and he curses it, and he says, may no one ever eat from you again. And this is the only miracle, at least in Matthew's gospel, that we see happen during Holy Week. The only miracle that Jesus performs is cursing a tree that was fruitless, And so then day after day, Jesus returned to the temple, to the place where he made this huge mess, and he preaches these thinly veiled sermons condemning the leaders of the religious system. Jesus directly confronted those who were benefiting from the temple industrial complex. It's such a fascinating glimpse into a very different side of Jesus than what we read in most of the rest of the Gospels. For three years, Jesus was extravagantly merciful. He was so tender towards sinners. All those who were considered way outside of God's family were welcomed at his table. People who were suffering from extreme demonization to the point where they they were dangerous and the rest of the pagan world wouldn't allow these people into into their cities or their villages. And Jesus went out and he healed them and restored them. That Jesus, he, he, there was a woman who was dragged out from the act of adultery and laid before him. And he sends compassion and mercy towards her and calls out the religious sort of self-righteous bigotry of the people who would drag this poor woman in front of him. Even super corrupt sinners, people who were profiting off of the extortion of God's people, like Levi and Zacchaeus were welcome to share a meal with Jesus. He was so compassionate and merciful towards sinners. And yet, there was one brand of sin that Jesus despised. One type of corruption that drove Jesus to anger and even violence. You see, Jesus was compassionate with those who were sinners and humble who were looking for salvation, and Jesus went to war with the self-righteous religious people. The people who were at greatest risk in Jesus' day of missing the kingdom of God were the super churchy people. It was the religious leaders of the day, those who were charged with leading and shepherding and caring for God's people who had missed it completely, and Jesus had no patience And so just a couple of days before Jesus goes to the cross, he stands in the middle of the temple and he gives his most scathing turn or burn sermon 
found in Matthew 23. If this is your first week at Vancouver Vineyard, you should probably get a little bit of context. We've been talking about sin for a couple of weeks. This isn't like every Sunday for us. Trust me, we're, we're getting ready to preach some really nice sermons soon. But we have one more to go, so hang with me, okay? Matthew 23, I'm just going to read you Jesus' sermon. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything that they say, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels of their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father and he is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Oh, beautiful. That's such a good word, Jesus. Are you done? No, not even close. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those who enter or let those enter who are trying to. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when you have succeeded, you make them twice as much a child of hell as you are. Woe to you, blind guides. You say if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gold of the temple is bound by that oath. You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? You also say if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But anyone who swears by the gift on the altar, it means the gift on the altar is bound by that oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Therefore, Anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And anyone who swears by the temple swears by it and by, and by the one who dwells in it. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by the one who sits on it. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint and dill and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but you swallow a camel. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and then the outside will will also be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Woe to you, teachers. 
teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You build tombs for the prophets and decorate their graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part in, with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead then, complete what your ancestors started. You snakes, you brood of vipers. How will you escape being condemned to hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and sages and teachers, and some of them you will kill and crucify. Others you will flog in your synagogues and pursue, and pursue from town to town. And so upon you will come all the righteous blood that has been shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come on this generation. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Mic drop. Like, no wonder they killed him. Right? Is it any mystery? What's interesting is that this, these words are the last public sermon that Jesus gave before he goes to the cross in the book of Matthew. All of the other teachings that he gives leading up to Good Friday are private conversations with his disciples where he's talking about the end of the age and he's telling some parables about what they can expect or where he's celebrating the Passover meal with them. The last public sermon that Jesus gives in the, in the temple, is this. Jesus is confronting a system of religious regulations that was actually well-meaning. It was intended to bring freedom to God's people, but instead it heaped weights and brought bondage to them. And so Jesus is going to war with what is well-intended, but ultimately corrupted by human sin. And my friends, this is where we are landing our series today. Some of the most insidious evil that is at work within you and me can be some of the stuff that people are most impressed by. You see, often in an attempt to rid ourselves of the sin that vandalizes our souls, we end up swinging the pendulum into the opposite direction and find ourselves bound up by something that is just as toxic as the rest of the sin of this world. Things like self-righteousness, religious adherence to an ideology, a spiritual practice, a legalism, or participation in a particular group. Our identities, they get twisted up in something that was meant to bring freedom, and instead it becomes a new taskmaster for us. We try to clean up our own vandalism, and in the process, we are further vandalized. I love this piece of art by Banksy, uh, famous vandal, <laughs> Banksy. Um, it's a picture of graffiti pretending to clean off graffiti. And this is like a picture of what Jesus is exposing in the Pharisees. It's a fake holiness trying to clean off an external defilement. That the very picture of cleaning is in itself vandalism. In Matthew 23, Jesus confronts several ways that these religious leaders of the day have vandalized themselves and they vandalize God's people. And here's the thing. Sadly, most of us will fall into some of the same traps. 
The first thing that Jesus points out is what, what I'll call performative religion. In verse 5, Jesus says, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogue. They love to be greeted in the marketplace. They love to be called rabbi by other people. Everything that they do is for people to see. Wow. The power of group dynamics is so strong. And when you pair it with a propensity towards signaling righteousness or virtue by belonging to the right group, you end up with silly, showy performance. Like, and, and every group has their sort of their customs, their, their ways of doing things, ways that make you feel like you, are, you really belong to the group and that you're part of the in crowd. Have you ever been to a church where there almost seems to be an unspoken dress code? And you show up and you're like, I'm the only person who is wearing color in a sea of black and white. I'm not going to call out any specific churches, but there are some of those. Or, or maybe you like to show and prove your faithfulness by bringing the right Bible to, to Bible study or to small group. You know what they say, the bigger a guy's Bible is, the more he's compensating for something. No. <laughs> character. He's compensating for bad character. That's what I mean by that. I thought that joke would land better. I'm sorry. <laughs> Posting your morning Bible reading next to a cup of coffee and a succulent on Instagram to show that you're really tight with Jesus. I mean, honestly, basically all of social media is the ultimate stage for performative religion. Or maybe, maybe signs like this one. Uh, have you seen these signs in million-dollar homes in the Laurelhurst neighborhood in Portland? No disrespect if you have one of these, like zero whatsoever. But what I'm trying to point out is that it's easy to put up a sign that signals that you believe the right thing without actually having to take responsibility to meaningfully participate in the solution. It's easy to put up a sign that says, I believe in good things, rather than actually doing good things. Buying a Tesla to save the environment. A Black Lives Matter window sign in a totally gentrified neighborhood. There are countless ways that we signal our righteousness so that we don't have to address the actual sin in our hearts. And are any of those things wrong in themselves? Like, absolutely not. No way. If you want to save the environment, you buy that Tesla and make sure that you get the white interior for the rest of us. I'm sorry, that was a, that was a joke. <laughs> Um, that was an inside joke. But when the heart is masquerading behind our performative signaling, then Jesus takes issue. Which brings us to the second thing we see in this chapter, which is exclusivity. The exclusivity of the Pharisees. In verse 13, he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You yourselves do not enter, nor will you let those enter who are trying to. See, the Pharisees would carefully define themselves and what their religious faithfulness was by really what they were against. What started out as a desire to be faithful to God's laws got twisted into levels of exclusivity. They defined who is an insider and an outsider. And if you were an outsider according to these guys, you were an outsider not only with them, you were an outsider with God. And this exclusivity shut the door to the kingdom of God in people's faces. 
And then in verse 15, Jesus says that they desire to make converts of other people. They'll go over land and sea. They'll travel these great distances to make converts, but they end up making converts who look just as corrupted as they do. He says that they are twice the children of hell that these people are. Which leads us to number three, purity tests. If you are defined by what you're against, you will need to clarify and clarify and clarify who you are not. If you're a real insider, then here is the language that you have to use. Here is the issue that you have to support. This is the way that your family is supposed to be structured. This is the amount of money that you're supposed to be giving, and a bunch of other examples like it. In verse 16, Jesus says, Woe to you, blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold in the temple, uh, is bound by that oath. You blind fools. Splitting hairs over these, these mundane and seemingly meaningless rules that they're heaping on people. And we see it in the religious world today. Do you read the right translation of the Bible? Do you vote for the right political party? Do you, does your wife stay home with kids or work outside the home? Are you reformed or are you not? Do you speak in tongues? Do you read the right authors? Are your kids in public school or private school or home school? Do you practice the Sabbath at all? And if you do, do you practice it on the right day? On the right day? And in some churches, these can be defining questions for people. The stricter the purity test for belonging, the more people are shut out from God's family. And so these religious people, in, in seeking to bring more and more clarity, they ended up defining other people out of the kingdom. And in so doing, Jesus says they have defined themselves out of the kingdom. And why do we do this? Why do we have these like strict purity tests? Because it feels so good to be an insider, to belong. And the more tightly that we define the group, who is in and who is out, the better it feels to belong to the true in crowd. And this happens everywhere. This isn't just in church world. This is in politics. This is in neighborhoods. This is in um, what, what, what restaurants we go to or what clubs we belong to. Each group will have minimum entrance requirements. If you want to belong, you have to do this. Every group is quick to cancel someone for something. And I'm hesitant. I'm not going to use any examples here because I think I'm already stepping on enough toes this morning. How are we doing? You guys still with me? Yeah. Okay. N- number four, the fourth thing we see in this, this, uh, this chapter is image over substance. In verse 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Obsessing over the small details of religious piety while ignoring the great issues of justice and mercy and faithfulness. And the image looks good. Like, look how faithful these guys are. They tithe out of their spice rack all the while neglecting the suffering of their neighbor, lacking empathy, lacking the ability to see the pain that other people are going through because, they would, because they're so focused on the details of their personal sort of ideology or ethos, defending their tribe. And this is such an easy trap to fall into. 
You could be in the church for every event, belong to multiple life groups, attend every prayer meeting, and you should attend every prayer meeting, by the way. Listen to a dozen preachers every week on your commutes and still miss God's heart for the people around you. The image is impressive, but the substance is lacking. And Jesus goes on to say, they clean the outside of the cup, but inside they're full of all kinds of defilement. That they're like whitewashed tombs that look beautiful on the outside, but inside is nothing but dead people's bones. And I think that this is, like Jesus could preach the same message in American Christianity, couldn't he? We look so pretty sometimes, all the while really being hollow on the inside. I think one of the great cancers that is malignant in American Christianity is the image-driven celebrity culture. It's been around for a while, but I think that it's actually been way dialed up over the last few decades. Leaders who carefully craft their image, their brand, in order to be relevant in the world, wearing expensive sneakers, designer clothes. In fact, I watched a documentary maybe some of you guys have seen. There was one preacher who uh, had a $15,000 hoodie. Did you know that there is such a thing as a $15,000 hoodie? Never in my life did I conceive of that. They hang out with celebrities and baptize them in bathtubs. They look so good on the outside, but in the end, we discover that under the surface, there was all kinds of brokenness, defilement, and sin appearing to be righteous rather than being righteous, signaling virtue without being virtuous, decrying sin publicly all the while indulging in it in private. Over the last couple of years, the curtain has been pulled back on the lives of a lot of these Christian leaders. And I believe actually that this is from God. I really do. I think that God right now is purifying his church because he hates hypocrisy. And I want to be very clear. When I say that, I say that as one who trembles, not judges. That's scary. And honestly, this wave of exposés that we've seen in, in recent months and years has hit me pretty hard. I have shed prayerful tears over some of the leaders who have been brought out into the light. In the last couple of years, we've seen the scandals of Willow Creek Church. We've seen Mars Hill. Just a couple of weeks ago, it was Hillsong. Even locally, here in Vancouver, we felt the painful ripples of Living Hope Church and all that happened there. And the one that really hurt me the most was Ravi Zacharias. If you know him, you know what I'm talking about. When I was in college, I read and listened to that man's sermons more than anyone else. His preaching shaped me. And it crushes me to think that while he was preaching these sermons that were shaping my belief in God, all the while, in the secret, he was preying on women. Why would God allow these men and women leaders in the body of Christ to be uncovered like this? Can he really be glorified through these scandals? I believe that God is allowing this because he will not tolerate hypocrisy. He will not abide such mixtures in his leaders. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said... Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. And verses like these, they make you squirm a little bit, right? 
these verses where Jesus says that what's been whispered in dark places will be shouted from the rooftops. Each of us have areas of our lives that if they were exposed, we would want to crawl under a rock and die. Like if God were to put the contents of your imagination or the things that you looked at online or the things that you've thought about other people, if he were to somehow be able to like broadcast them onto the screen right up here in the stage while I'm preaching, like not one of us would remain in this room. We would all flee and hide ourselves in shame. But believe it or not, it's actually God's kindness. It, it, it's, it's his kindness that exposes sin, not his judgment. His desire for us isn't shame. His desire for us is freedom. You see, it's not the humble who fear exposure. It's the self-righteous. And Jesus is confronting self-righteousness. Finally, what, I see, what we see in Matthew 23 is self-deception. It's a kind of self-righteousness that believes ourselves to be above history. In verse 30, he says, You say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in shedding blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are the descendants of those who murder the prophets. Go ahead then and complete what your ancestors started. There's a deception to our self-righteousness that hardens our hearts to our, to our sin. We assume that we wouldn't be like our ancestors who do these heinous acts like they did. We have the, the vantage point of, of historical judgment to be able to say, well, that was wrong. I would never have done that. But just like Tyler said a couple of weeks ago, citing Pete Scazzaro, he said, Jesus may live in your heart, but grandpa lives in your bones. And the Pharisees, they decried the past evils of their ancestors from the unfair vantage point of historical perspective. But this, the truth is the same sin that, res, that resided in their ancestors was just as alive and well in them. And spoiler, guys, it's alive and well in us. And so Jesus calls out the Pharisees. He's like, oh, yeah, you, you think you wouldn't have shed the blood of, of the prophets? You would have. And you're, gone. you're going to. And you're actually going to kill the author of life in just a few days. So, like, you're not so great, guys. And how many of us think the same kind of things about ourselves? I would have been at Selma marching with Dr. King for sure. I would have been hung alongside Dietrich Bonhoeffer in resisting the Nazi regime. I would have selected Michael Jordan for the Trailblazers in the 1984 NBA draft <laughs> instead of freaking Sam Bowie. That was for my dad. <laughs> Poor Sam Bowie has been a curse word in my home for many years. So. And of course, these are all unknowns. Who's to say? The problem isn't speculation. The problem is the self-righteousness that drives the speculation. And so if you are a Pharisee, and all of us are Pharisees in something, here are Jesus' words. Woe. Woe to you. Your self-righteousness is death, destined for death. So what hope is there? How can we resist this inclination towards sin? And, I, and my friends, like we've been in some heavy stuff over the last several weeks, talking about sin, talking about the vandalism of shalom, talking about all that's gone wrong in the world, all that's gone wrong in our own hearts. And the reason that we're doing this, my friends, is because honestly, if we're honest as a church community, this is not something that we major on. This is not something that we reflect on very much. But 
As Fleming Rutledge said, it is only in considering the weight of our sin that we can truly appreciate the value of the cross. Now, the, what hope is there? The ultimate answer to that question is what we are about to celebrate next Sunday morning. That Jesus, he didn't just pronounce woe, drop the mic, get on a boat, and go to Hawaii. No, Jesus took all of the woe on himself at the cross and he put it to death. He disarmed all of the power of the judgment and the woe that was due to these religious people. In exchange, each of us who respond to his invitation will receive resurrection life. So come back next week and bring all your friends to hear the good news of what Jesus has done for us. But for this week, I simply want to point out Jesus' way to experience freedom and true life instead of religion and self-righteousness. You see, the way of Jesus' kingdom is to invert the values and assumptions of the world. The way to true power is through nonviolent surrender and servanthood. The way to gain your life is to lose it. The, the true riches come through the blessedness of not being possessed by anything and possessing nothing. This inversion is how we experience freedom from the Pharisee spirit. You see, the Pharisees, the way of the Pharisee, is to hide all of your defilement in a dark closet and lock it away where no one will ever be able to see, and then to broadcast all of your righteousness for everybody to be impressed by. And the way of Jesus flips that upside down. We fight the Pharisee spirit by bringing our sin out into the light and by practicing our righteousness in the secret place. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says this. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And when you pray, don't be like those hypocrites. For they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. There's nothing left for them to gain. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret, he's going to pour out his rewards and his blessing on you. Don't be like the hypocrites. When you pray, don't stand up in front of everybody and, and prove your righteousness and your holiness and how eloquent and faithful you are. No, go to the secret place. Go be with God alone. And then instead of hiding your sin, we are called to bring it into the light in 1 John chapter 1, we read, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all of our sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We resist this, this tendency towards self-righteousness by bringing our sin out into the light. We don't give it room to grow in the dark. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. We don't hide our sin, we expose it. Now, to be clear, this is not about broadcasting your, like, don't stop posting it on Facebook, whatever sin you want 
to confess right now. Like, we're not broadcasting our sin or wearing it on our sleeve. This is really about walking with a sense of transparency and openness with your community. It's about having trusted people who know your sin and walk with you in repentance. Why? Because that's the way to freedom. That's the way to true freedom. Pharisees hide and they perform. Disciples of Jesus repent and humbly live out their righteousness in the quiet with God. This church is a humble community of followers of Jesus. We want to be like Jesus. We want to be with Jesus. We want nothing that keeps us from him. This church, from the first day that I came back to this church in 2009, I have noticed that this church is resists pretense and any kind of false image. And no one here will be scandalized by what you carry into this room with you. So here's the thing. When, when I was writing this sermon, I'm going to go off script for a second here. When I was writing this sermon, uh, I, I wanted to check with Carly to find out if, I'm, if this is okay to say. Are we okay? Okay. And as I was reading portions of this, particularly that section that was all about how God will allow these leaders to be exposed because he will not tolerate hypocrisy, I found myself reading the words just verbatim, word for word to her, and like everything inside of me wanted to stop talking because I knew that Carly's got the goods on me and that she could very easily turn these words right at me and say, but what about this and this and this and this and this? You get up week after week and you preach the gospel, but you're a mess. You have all of this sin and nobody knows about it but me. You guys probably do know about it, but I like to think you don't. And, um, and, it's, and it, it, it uncovered my deepest fear, like my personal deepest fear that I carry around with me everywhere I go is that my children will grow up in a home where they see dad on Sunday praying for people, hands in the air and worship and all of that sort of stuff and will know all of the reasons why it's a lie in the privacy of our home. During this sermon series, I have been praying that every single one of us would hear the voice of God highlighting something, something that he wants to bring into the light, something he wants to walk us away from and into freedom. And at the same time, I've been wrestling with the fact that like, all of these sermons have been great and they've, uh, you know, listening to everybody preach has been great, but I don't know, I don't really know what I'm supposed to take away. And then I wrote this sermon and the Lord was like, that's you. <laughs> It's got a case, it's okay. My friends, he doesn't do this to shame us. He doesn't poke at our sin to shame us. He does it because he wants to forgive and set us free. And that's what I want to come away with this, from this sermon series for each one of us. If you are secretly a mess, join the club. You're welcome here. We are your people. There's no reason to hide and there's no one here to impress. We want to walk with you in freedom. Amen.